0: So go to Amazon on March 8th, and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, "The Eternal Optimist." It's never too late, and you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. (laughs) Psychedelics. Well, I can I can say this that I lived a a lifestyle growing up where I was never I never saw any of these things. I never was exposed to any kind of drinking or drugs or anything uh, in high school. I got away to college. I went out the window pretty quick and saw it all. I didn't ever try any of that. I mean, I drank some in college, but I never really tried anything I would call a drug until after after college. So I uh, you know, tried the, the Magic Mushroom experience a few times in my 20s if for recreation, just for fun. I thought it was pretty fun. I'd never had a bad trip, as they would say. When I was in this tough spot with my body, with the spinal injury, I went back to this to, to see if there was a way out because some people had said that, you know, psychedelics are a way to heal trauma to heal pain, and I would try literally anything to get away from that excruciating pain. I don't want to judge anyone out there who's ever tried a a drug or a medicine or anything to try to get rid of excruciating pain. My ideas on this have shifted since I've had this uh, excruciating pain. So I was ready to try anything. I tried it.
1: I'm your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. And this is the Better Call Daddy Show.
0: Hey,
2: this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa grandpa you ready
1: for more daddy drama my dad is my number one hero and number one fan
2: and i'm a pretty cool dude
1: all right season four baby here we go more stories you're not going to believe
2: and maybe you will after you listen five stars five and a half stars two thumbs up
1: you are a pretty cool dude I love you
2: mommy don't stand on the table and damn the public you'll get some words of wisdom to live by here we go again better call daddy you know what your problem is you like me yeah
1: i do each week i interview a guest share the stories with my dad and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit Hey, Grandpa! everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers and of course controversial people
2: grandpa my mom is calling creating that legacy one call at a time and welcome to the better call daddy show
0: stay tuned
2: where's the music
0: Better call daddy, cause he knows your best Better call daddy, cause he's bringing the zest He sees possibilities, possibilities. Ooh, mm-hmm. Better call daddy, you'll be by your side Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye
1: Today's guest is a front row dad. He's the host of the Eternal Optimist podcast. He's a coach and a business strategist. A coach has to help whoever they're coaching make real positive progress. They have to stay active with it. They have to help them satisfy their goals, not just yours. And today we're getting into that. Matt, welcome to the Better Call Daddy show.
0: We're ready to rock and roll, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go. go. Right after the Super Bowl. Right, so this the Super Bowl, man. Oh, my God. I had such a great time meeting Mark and his wife out there. Oh, my goodness. Very exciting. I will not elaborate because we're recording.
1: Oh, my gosh. I got to know a little bit. Come on.
0: Well, let's just say there's a book coming and a lot, a lot of big things. A lot of big things happening. Big things. Big things, baby.
1: Big things. Big You're things. a big guy.
0: Big things. Big guy. Big time. That's right. All, all big things, especially the Uber bill. The Uber bill was big. On the days that I rode the Uber, Mark and his wife were were so generous to drive me home that one night when we spent some time together. But every other time, I was Ubering, and man, I must have spent like four hundred fifty dollars on Uber last week. So that was like the the biggest Uber week yet.
1: That's a big bill. Okay, tell me how you and Mark Victor Hansen met.
0: We met. This is amazing. We met because you wrote a book called Ask. By the way, ask. And it's an amazing book. And it genesis of this book, the theme is that if you have something that you want out there, ask for it. Ask the world to provide, ask God to provide, ask people the questions you know so i knew he had this book and i was referred to him the referral story is amazing it's amazing it's an inspiration if this if this is the recording that goes out there then this is amazing here's what happened i have this friend Her name is jenny bellinger i had her on my show she's amazing she has a podcast called the badass direct sales mastery podcast it's a one of the top podcasts in, in the sales genre i know her because she was my neighbor next door at 14 years old and she asked me about six years ago hey matt how do i get into this coaching things i'm interested she asked me some questions. I gave her some feedback. She became a coach. So she reached out to me out of nowhere and says, Matt, I appreciate that conversation we had a number of years ago. I became a coach doing this. It's working well. And I just wanted to thank you. And by the way, she invited me to be on her show. I invited her to be on my show. And at the end, I asked her, I said, Jenny, you know, who is the person out there that when you think about it, you've had him on your show or you're connected to him that just blows your mind that, man, I got to interview them. I got to have them on the show. And it was awesome. I learned so much and they're amazing. She said, Oh, it's easy. It's Mark Victor Hansen. Mark Victor Hansen, amazing. So she connected me to Mark Victor Hansen and he has been nothing but generous and gracious with his time. The way that he even teed me up and introduced me to people was incredibly skillful and very like turnaround right away, did it very quickly. So I've been nothing but impressed by his level of service follow through. He's he's a wow guy. You met him, you know, you've got a, a, a sample. He's just like me too. He like goes a hundred miles an hour this way, that way, that way. And it all ties back to wanting to serve, wanting to help, wanting to add value. So Jenny connected me to him, my neighbor from 32 years ago. i have not seen her in 31 years, not physically seen her face to face. And I asked her and she connected me to him and it's leading to all kinds of stuff. Here's the moral of the story. You never know who that person you're connected to right now in this moment can be the person that connects you to that next person, the next person that really helps you to have a dream come true, right? And and Mark is on the way to help me have a dream of mine come true, which is to publish a book. And that became from Jenny, my old friend from 14 years old, connecting me with them. Boom. You never know. That was it.
1: Possibilities are endless, baby. I absolutely love yeah. that. And if you're going to write a book with anyone, it should be that guy.
0: Uh, why? Why? Well, because he knows how to sell books and they're all awesome. I mean, I read... Chicken Soup for the Golfer's Soul when I was in high school. I remember that book. Now, and it's a funny thing my wife and I like to do on the side is that when we go out on the weekends, sometimes we'll go to Habitat for Humanity, the ReStore, or we'll go to the Goodwill store, and I will go and pick up a bunch of books. You know, These are some of the gifts that I give out to, to people when I facilitate events. I give them books. So I go and pick them up for like a dollar at the store rather than get them all for retail. So I, every time I see a chicken soup book now, I pick it up. I've got like six or seven of them on the shelf now because I see them sometimes. So yeah, it's a fun little hobby, collecting, Use chicken soup books. But you didn't think you'd get that out of me today. Boom.
1: I love it. Hey, it's (laughs) something different. Another thing I want to get out of you is the zipline story. I know you didn't fall from far, I know your mantra is, "If you fall, you get back up." So, talk to me about the zip line story.
0: Okay, it's Labor Day, 2015, down at the in-laws' house down in Fort Mill, South Carolina, and they have uh, they have a pool out back, beautiful little, little setup down there in in a cul-de-sac little neighborhood. And in the backyard, they've got some good good land back there. In the backyard, there's a zip line now. I'm thinking, wait a second, wait a second. You talk about a homemade zip line? Of course it broke. Well, no, this thing has been there for years. And I've been down it myself like 30 or 40 times. If my kids are going down, it, it's safe. I would I've let my kids go down it even I would let them go down it because it was it was something that was yeah, I, I'd done it. And I was like 250 pounds at the time. So I, I did it and it was okay. All right, so go down this zip line. It's only, I say only 15 feet above the ground. So by the time I'm hanging from it, i my butt is probably you know 12 feet above the ground 10 feet above the ground well when you're a 250 pound man at the age of roughly how old was that in 2015 38 you know if you're that size and that age and you fall on your butt it does some damage you know so i never expected that would happen i've gone to climb to the top of the zip line i'm up there i'm i'm harnessed and i'm ready to go and i'm going down the zip line and the unthinkable happened the handle by which I'm holding on—that is what broke. The handle broke. It wasn't the uh, the line itself. It was the handle. So the handle broke underneath my weight, and I fell to the ground, and I landed on my butt, on my tailbone. And I don't know if you remember back in the day when you'd watch like Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner Runner have the have those funny, funny, funny cartoons, and you know the the Road always drop an anvil on the head of the Wiley e. Coyote, and you'd always see stars. And you think that's kind of a funny thing in the cartoon but is that real well maybe if the the way that I've been indoctrinated over the years is to think that's real I literally saw stars when I hit the ground and I blacked out for what seemed like just a moment. It was about four to six seconds roughly that i was kind of dazed and i was literally seeing stars i felt something was off when i hit the ground and when i came to and i could not get up you know i'm laying there on the ground i cannot get up i'm trying to collect my thoughts and collect myself and i saw stars as it turns out what happened was my butt hit the ground it sent a shock wave of electricity up my spine It condensed and herniated uh, multiple discs in my spine. My spine is already from trampoline accidents back from a long time ago. My spine is already not straight. It's already a little bit crooked, and this made it more crooked. I couldn't. I couldn't get up. The family's there. Like everyone I know really well is all right there with me, and I'm I'm there on the ground. I'm in immense pain. I guess the adrenaline's taken over. So I, I at that moment I I didn't feel all the pain I was about to feel. But I, I'm there on the ground. I'm not able to move. The moment they slowly over the course of like two or three minutes, I slowly start to try to sit up. They get me to set up. Uh, my wife is right there. You know, my father-in-law is right there. And some of the friends are there at the uh, the party are there. And they eventually help me up. So after about three or four or five minutes, I get up. And I very gingerly start to walk over to the, to the side deck, the back deck. And I'm able to walk over there. And things are okay at the moment. But what happens next, Rena, is it's it's inspirational to me. It wasn't inspirational at the moment. It was time to practice all this positive attitude and positive self-talk and all this stuff that I've been preaching for years. It's time to start practicing this stuff. It's really time to get put to the test. Because this is on autopilot for me. I'm always pretty energetic and pretty positive. But now, underneath this this challenge, this burden, it shifts over time. Just imagine Labor Day 2015 for the next nine months as the globe circles, as the calendar moves forward. Each week, my health deteriorates just a little bit more. I fly out to uh, to Los Angeles, you know, on December third of 2015, to go play golf out there with a the client, and you know, spend uh, you know five or six hours at the airport, take the red eye flight back, and in coach, in coach seating. And I mentioned that specifically because normally I will sit in coach and get the emergency exit row. I couldn't get it this time. So I'm sitting in coach, I'm sitting like my back is erect, I'm stuffed in this lunchbox of a seat. All those things, the golf, the sitting in the airport for five hours, waiting for the red eye, being on the red eye for five hours in that seat, and then getting back and doing a coaching calls in the car in the airport for a couple hours, all of that led to... I couldn't walk for three days i literally had to stay in bed for the next three days i could not walk later i would come to find out that the disc was so badly herniated and my spine was sitting directly on the nerve and that's why so fast forward from that december 3rd 4th 5th until the time i had a spinal surgery things got just progressively worse and I tried everything that I could read, you know, everything I could afford. I tried, you know, I tried, you know, sitting in ice baths all the time. I was, I was icing all the time. You know, and I tried physical therapy. I tried a chiropractor. My friend Dean referred me to the sports physical therapist for the, I think it was the Carolina Panthers or the, or the Hornets. One, one of the, one of the teams at the time gave me the, the, the best in town for the best sports teams in town. And they couldn't do anything. You know, I tried hypnotherapy. I tried being hypnotized. I tried psychedelics. I want to hear about Uh, the
1: psychedelics. I heard you uh, mention that
0: before. (laughs) Well, I tried it. It didn't give me any relief in my spine. It gave me a definitely a very interesting journey into my spiritual domain, into my mental. So that's a whole nother story. Pause. We might come back to that. I then tried the, the next thing. After all the physical things that I could try and I could afford, we got to a place where we tried a spinal shot. They gave me cortisone shots into my spine, which was terrifying to me, terrifying. And that didn't work. I walked out of there and that didn't work. So it's around mid-March of 2016 at this time. I've tried all these things in about a 75-day period. Nothing has worked. So my friend uh, who's on a board of a charter school with me, Marty McCarthy, he's connected in town. He used to be the pastor of the biggest church in town. He said, I have someone that might be able to help you. He connected me with someone who runs one of the uh, big hospital systems in town. So lucky me that I had a network that can connect me like this to this gentleman, this gentleman, Dan, connected me to a surgeon. They scheduled the surgery. I'd done everything I possibly could, and my health was just going downhill so fast. It got to the point, and maybe some of your listeners who've ever experienced something like this will really, hopefully they can empathize with me on this one, because this was this was the hardest. This is the hardest place I think I've ever been in since I've been married. It was a place where I was in excruciating pain, pain that to me and my level of pain tolerance was a nine or a 10, like just unbearable pain about 10 to 15% of the time. And it would come and go. And I never knew when it was coming. Right. I and normally it would come after. I would take off this back brace. I had a brace I would put on to keep my back straight. But when I took it off, man, within the next few minutes, something would happen and everything would start to compress again. I would have to lay on the floor with my feet up on the legs, up on the couch, just flat back on the floor. Imagine when I'm doing this, I'm running a coaching business, you know, and I'm still doing what I do today, but I'm doing it in year one of my coaching business, going into year two of coaching. And I've got to maintain the positive attitude, the positive energy. While I'm in excruciating pain, Uh, about 10 or 15% of the time. Incredible pain, challenging time. And uh, near the end of that time period in late May of 2016, I ended up in a wheelchair. My neighbors across the street, uh, Robin and Jim. Jim had had a spinal fusion surgery and he had had some time recovering in a, in a wheelchair before. And I got this back brace from him. I got the wheelchair from them. The wheelchair was not very comfortable. You know, so I I put the spinal brace on like this giant brace and I sit in the wheelchair together. I felt like I was double like locked in. I was pretty, pretty solid. But it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't a comfortable way to sit and be coaching people. No one could see the wheelchair on the coaching calls. The webcam didn't show that. But I'm sitting in this wheelchair. I'm coaching there. And it was it was tough. I left the house once in that last five weeks to go to a friend's party at the lake. I tried to brave it to go out there knowing that the excruciating pain, when it hits, I literally have to go on the ground and curl up in a fetal position and I'm not able to do anything. Incredibly, I would say embarrassing for my wife for me to be doing this in public. So I'm I'm mindful of this. We go out to the lake house, go out to the party. And thank God it didn't hit me at that point. I tried to stay seated most of the time. But a couple of times it started to hit me, and man, I ended up on that floor in that fetal position. <laughs> All my friends are around, and I don't think anyone really knew because I tried to keep it. Tried to keep it kind of hush hush as to what was really going on in the background, but it was hard. June 14, 2016, I got wheeled into that operating room, wheeled into the hospital, and there was a chance. My wife and I prayed about this a number of times in advance. I cried about it going in, my identity, being an athlete, and being tall, and being maybe not as muscular, but I felt I was pretty muscular and strong going into this. I felt, man, my identity is shifting and it's shattering in front of me right now. I'm not going to be able to play golf anymore. I'm a scratch golfer. I'm not going to be able to play basketball anymore. That's what I did in college. So I'm not gonna be able to do these things. I'm not gonna be able to run anymore. At the time I went to the hospital, I couldn't do hardly anything. I couldn't get upstairs. I had just slept in my own bed in weeks. I couldn't cook. I couldn't literally stand in front of the kitchen stove and cook. I, I couldn't be intimate with my wife. I hadn't been intimate with her in like a month. I, I literally couldn't, I couldn't do anything which would require my body to move outside of a couple of fixed positions I could get into. And it was just, it was so, so challenging. Going into the hospital, the doctor said, there is a chance that you might not walk again. There's a chance, you know, and there's a there's a it's a slim possibility. There's a chance that might happen with these kind of surgeries. You know, there's the odds are he'll clean it up, he'll shave away the herniated disc, and you'll be okay. But there's a chance. You know, I want you to be prepared for any and all possibilities. So my wife and I were were set on there's a possibility that I might be. Uh, disabled for the rest of my life. Tried over that and I became comfortable to thought that, you know what, this eternal optimism practice, uh, this is uh, like what, four years before the show actually comes out or actually five years before my, my podcast actually launches. But I'm still an eternal optimist back then. This is like totally authentic me. So you know what, whatever happens, uh, we're going to make the most of it. And we're still gonna have a great impact on the world. So we prayed over that. We cried over that. And then I went in and had the surgery. And I walked out of the hospital later that day. Thank God. Thank God. I walked out. The doctor said to me, Matt, I want you to walk five miles a day, every day, moving forward. I don't want you to play tennis anymore. No more racquetball. I don't want you to play any sports that are stop and go like basketball. I can't do that right now. How about golf, doctor? And he said, well, ask me in a few months. So I didn't play golf for a while either. But the point is, I walked out of there. Back up before we walk out here might be something that if anyone else out there is going to have a spinal surgery or any kind of surgery, here was something that didn't tell me, but it's rather interesting for the male. And what I mean by that is that when I got out of the surgery, they said to me, Matt, you're welcome to go when you go to the bathroom, because sometimes if you have this type of surgery and you get all these medications, sometimes you don't go to the bathroom, you know, and that actually can cause some, some real problems. So they had to make sure that I went to the bathroom, you know, number one, number two, it didn't matter. I just had to go. So I'm sitting in there. I'm about two hours after the surgery. I still haven't been able to pee. Right. And so I know I'm going to get real graphic here. Pee. All right. I'm, you guys can all take it. All right. So I'm there in, the, in, the, in my little hospital room off to the side. I would say it's like a holding area because they're ready to get me the heck out of there. But I got to pee before I can go. The nurse comes in and says to me, Matt, if you're not able to pee in the next 10 minutes, then we're going to use this and we're going to help you pee. And she shows me this freaking thing called the catheter. And I've heard of such things before. I've heard of them. Maybe I've had one before because I've had now been under, the, been under the the knife 11 times, been under anesthesia and operations. So I probably have had one before, but I wouldn't know it because this one, I'm fully a- a- alive, awake, aware No, no sedation. And we're going to put this, we're going to put this thing. It looked like it was about as wide as this toilet paper roll right here. It looked like it was about that big. They're going to put this thing up my, uh, up my, uh, my male organ. And I'm like, what the freaking heck? Are you freaking kidding me? There's no way that's going to happen. And by the way, at this exact moment, I am so appreciative of my wife for being able to have children and have all of our kids because holy freaking cow, I'm terrified of something that looks like literally, it probably wasn't the size of a toilet paper. It was more like a pen or a pencil, but it looked terrifying to me. It looked absolutely terrifying. I, if you want to see a man, I have never peed faster in my entire life than that right there. I literally went in there and within like a minute, I was going to the bathroom and we were out of there. That is part of the story of the spinal surgery and everything that happened around it. And it was an incredibly challenging time in our lives because right when the surgery was happening in June of 2016, we were six and a half months pregnant with our second child. Julie was shouldering a a heavy burden of taking care of everything around the house because I basically couldn't do anything at that time for very long. Constant. I couldn't stand up for, for more than about 20 or 30 seconds before I had to keep moving and the pain would come on when I was standing. So I tried to stay in, in a docile, like seated or laying down position as much as I possibly could. So she was she was definitely shouldering a heavy burden. A lot was on her at the time. So I'm incredibly grateful to her for doing that and I'm grateful, incredibly grateful to all Women slash moms who have had a child anyway, they've had a child because I thought that I had challenges when I saw that uh, that catheter. Just the one look at it for five minutes, I was terrified of it. And and to know that uh, I'm gonna have a baby if I were a mom, I can't imagine that. So so thank you all, moms. I guess that's my uh, that's my story. Yes,
1: they're not comfortable. I've experienced one myself. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I would like to know what those other eleven times in the hospital were.
0: Yeah, oh, all kinds of things. I remember the very first time I ever went under the uh under the anesthesia. I was in the first grade, living in Omaha, Nebraska. And went to the doctor for, I guess, whatever you have in the first grade, and they said you have a hernia. So I had a hernia in the first grade. However you got that, I don't know. But they had to had to have a hernia operation. So I went and had a hernia operation in the first grade. And I remember coming to after the surgery, and they said that I was making jokes and, and saying funny things while I was Kind of woozy, but I remember coming too. The best thing about having surgery, of course, surviving is one thing, and being being well is one thing. The best thing for a kid, for a first grader, it's all the ice cream, man. They gave me ice cream after that surgery, and my parents gave me a He-Man toy. So I got a He-Man toy, the battering ram. Took got to play with that thing at home. Like within ten minutes of having it, we shot the actual battering ram itself into the fireplace. So and the fire was on, so we actually never never play with that again. But I love the surgery for that. That was the first of. Currently, we're at 11 times underneath anesthesia. Oh, the rest of those, keep them real simple, need various knee surgeries and leg surgeries for sports injuries. That was like the next seven or eight of them. And then we came to the LASIK surgery. That were glasses for 27 years. We had the LASIK surgery at the time it came out back in 2005, 2005, September. And uh, that was awesome because then I could start to play golf without uh, my glasses falling down my face anymore. So that was Yeah, uh, when did you get glasses? I got them uh, pretty young, I want to say very young, three, four years old, very young, and wore them for the longest time. I always had the biggest bottle glasses, like they were giant. I think I remember one point going to college, when I went away to college, I got like John Lennon, like they were thinner, smaller frames, so I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, these are the, uh, the things that go through the minds of a young boy who has glasses how can I make glasses cool? Well, maybe it's with uh, you know John Lennon type glasses, like little circular ones. Turns out, I don't know if there's any way to make glasses cool. The person is cool, not not necessarily the glasses. Yeah. So I had glasses until uh, what, from age three, four to 28 when I had the, uh, the LASIK. And just now, 17 years later, just now I'm starting to uh, see or starting to see that it's wearing off a little bit. So I might need to go get it retouched up.
1: Interesting. So, well, my yeah. son got glasses at three and he just got contacts. I feel like his vision has been blocked by the big glasses for a long time. So he was talking about being able to see in a different way now. So I can relate to what you were saying there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was hard for me. Contact lenses, the actual thought of touching your eyeball. To me, that was that was actually pretty terrifying. I think about things that might scare some people: public speaking or making phone calls to do sales calls and get rejected. Those things, I love those things. That's an opportunity to shine, and I love public speaking and I love you know making the calls. I love the rejection. It's just it feeds me. So I, those things, I don't, I'm not so nervous about but putting your finger on your eyeball. Are you freaking kidding me? That is terrifying to me. Putting your finger on your eyeball is one of those things. Like literally, this is one of my my big fears for me was touching my eyeball. So I never did contacts. Okay. Did
1: you approach that fear with the psychedelics? T- talk to me about that now.
0: <laughs> psychedelics. Well, I can could, I could say this, that I lived a, a, a lifestyle growing up where I was never, I never saw any of these things. I never was exposed to any kind of drinking or drugs or anything uh, in high school. I got away to college. <laughs> I went out the window pretty quick and saw it all. I didn't ever try any of that. I mean, I drank some in college, but I never really tried anything I would call a drug until after after college. So I, uh, you know, tried the the magic mushroom experience a few times in my 20s you know, for recreation, just for fun. I thought it was pretty fun. I'd never had a bad trip, as they would say. When I was in this tough spot with my body, with the spinal injury, I went back to this to to see if there was a way out because some people had said that you know psychedelics are a way to heal trauma, to heal pain. And I would try literally anything to get away from that excruciating pain. I don't want to judge anyone out there who's ever tried a, a, a drug or a medicine or anything to try to get rid of excruciating pain. My ideas on this have shifted since I've had this uh, excruciating pain. So I was ready to try anything. I tried it. You know, I had someone that without going into too much detail about uh, where I got it, but I got some access to this uh, psilocybin, you know, mushroom edible. I ate these caps and stems and had kind of a, a trippy experience, as I think they might say. And it was in a what you might call a guided form where the uh, the journey, what do they call it? A guided session. I, I sat down and did this with this professional guide, this is for a living, attempted to, you know, let go of all the tension, the things that were in my body and clear my mind. And I think that it did work very well to do that. If anyone is curious, what are the details that are happening when you're in this this place. Uh, well, there's some funny stuff that happens. At least the way that my mind works, it led to some some things I thought were pretty funny. I see that the blinds were trying to get me on on the house that I was staying. They were they were always trying to come down and get me. Like the random things, the room were trying to talk to me. So I was trying to get my body healed. I ended up having a, a heck of a time just laughing at a bunch of stuff. My default is to laugh at things, so uh, I had a great time doing it. Uh, I was probably looking silly as all oh, get out. That's okay. But I had a blast doing it. And I think this is like a four to five or six hour experience. When I came to, or when my mind was clearer, I probably slept for about 14 or 15 hours and woke up the next day. And I felt more clear in my life mission, but the pain had not gone away. (laughs) It did not help with the pain at all. That experience, however, just a side note on this, Rena, some people might look down on that and say that, well, you did all this, you're this high level coach and you're doing drugs. Well, I don't I would look at it as doing drugs. I would look at it. I was trying to find a way to explore a, a path that many people have used to overcome trauma. You know, not the the least of which might be returning troops who are suffering from PTSD or anyone who has emotional trauma of any way in their life and their background, which a lot of us do, to overcome that. This would be a, a method that i've seen work very well with helping people overcome trauma and release things that they had a hard time letting go of for me i didn't use it for that though the emotional part of it i did it because i wanted to have some relief in my back so i did not get the relief in the back i did have a good time where i laughed a lot and i a little bit of emotional intelligence work was done i think that's about as much as i can say at the moment on on the the mushroom experience back in 2016 other than to say one last thought on this might be i i don't see why this is illegal in our country. It's helping people out there right now. You know, My thought on items like this, sure, they're going to be abusers of anything, but they're abusers of you know, vehicles that drive horribly. There's abusers of alcohol. That's legal. They're abusers of a number of different things out there. Guns is a big raging debate in our country. Yeah, so there are people that are going to abuse when you make it legal. But why not just go ahead and put a, put a retail price on it, tax it, uh, make some more revenue for the government. And it's something that if it can help people overcome, I would say, mental stuff or trauma, What's the problem here? I mean, let's 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 give it a shot. And let him do it. If you do do some deeper research on this topic of psychedelics. You'll find that there are a number of people out there who are not the status quo saying just toe the line. This is an illegal drug. This is bad for people. They're saying this actually could help in so many different ways. You know, there there are things on Netflix right now. If you see, like, I think it was Joe Polian who did. That was his name, Polian, who did. He's written a bunch. Michael Polian is his name, I believe. Michael Polian or Pollen is his Pollen. name. Yeah. Pollen. Yeah. He had a nice little, I think it was called Fantastic Fungi, a little Netflix documentary that came out probably seven, eight, nine months ago. That was phenomenal. It talks about mushrooms and some of the healing capabilities they have. So I don't know how we got to mushrooms, but I would say that I'd be an advocate for it. I don't do it recreationally. And I, at this moment, there's no trauma that I'm currently working on overcoming. And I invite people to do that themselves. I'm no doctor, so listen to your doctor. But that's something that uh, it's, it's worked for me in, in a small scale. And I'd love to see if it could work for others that are overcome some trauma.
1: How do you find a guide or the right guide?
0: I don't know exactly how to talk about it out loud right now because I know it's this is something still illegal in the country. And I think about the borderline of legal illegal. I mean I know that legally, federally, it's illegal to have marijuana, but it's legal and a lot of states are actually selling it now. (laughs) You know, so there there's some Maybe some, some complexities of answering that question. I'm not sure how to answer that other than there's there's probably a place where you can go and find the right guide if you do your research and go find people online. There are people out there that do this, but I don't know how to publicly make an introduction of that concept. because I mean, does it relate legal. to how you
1: find the right coach? How do you find the right coach?
0: Well, in that case, yeah, I think that it would be you reach out to someone who's had that experience. You you go to your network and you ask people in your network, do you have any experience of something like this? That might be the the first step for someone looking for the right guide for a journey like this. That's how I did it is I found someone in my network that had some experience with this and they, they recommended me to someone.
1: Now, I want to go back to the Jenny story and when she was becoming a coach, can you talk to me about what makes a good coach? How did you get into coaching? I'm interested in that.
0: Oh, sure. Love to, love to. Yeah. So what makes a good coach? It depends on what the person that is going to be the client is looking for. So if I say what makes a good coach, I think Phil Jackson, for example, in the NBA, people might say he's one of the best coaches because he got all the rings. What did he really do to help Michael Jordan and to help Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal go out there and do what they do? You know, I think a good coach is defined by really good players if you find people that are coachable willing to commit and trust the process and you have a process that's proven to get results then you can have this impression that you're a good coach you know i would say that my process is really it's it's quite simple if i'm coaching someone client or i'm teaching a coach how to be a coach either way I have, I have a little saying and the saying is become a heat-seeking missile for pain what does that mean well if you can understand what your prospect or the person you're coaching understand what the hardest thing is for them you know what that big block or a barrier is for them that challenging painful thing for them if you can understand that and help them to overcome that on the way to reaching what they want most then you can be a good coach you just need to understand what it is it's hard for them so many coaches get out there that are young trying to give life advice and that would be fine I think that some type of coach is probably better than no coach because you have someone you can run your ideas off. I don't know if I can trust all the sources though. I don't know if I can trust someone as a coach that doesn't have the life experience in which they're coaching me on, right? So- What led me to coaching is a lot of sales experience, 130 million in sales in my career, a lot of uh, working with employees. I've had 2,500 salespeople or employees underneath my span, underneath my stead in that time before the age of about 36, 37. So I've experienced more than many people have get to the end of the career because I I was put in place by good people. So I have this experience and I've been using this experience to help other companies make a lot of money and a lot of clients happy so I figured, let's give it a shot and go back to being an entrepreneur and be, my, be be a coach. All right. A lot of people are doing something like this. How did I make it? And I say, make it. I'm in year nine. I'm hopefully going to keep making it. But how I got into it was I straw broke the camel's back. In corporate America, I had a very painful straw break. I had to get out. I had to get out. I loved all my people that work with me, work for me. I loved the the people that were my supervisors. And I didn't love the system I was operating in. So I came to a coach, an entrepreneur format to kind of forge our own way again and do it on our terms. You and I talked about this on my show, I believe. We did it on our terms, the way we wanted to do it and had the flexibility to do it the way we want to. Coaching provided that uh, that avenue. The reason I'm still in it, I would say, I would say I'm good at it. Why do I get so bag to say that? Well, the people that I've coached over time have been the greatest feedback for that because if it wasn't working i wouldn't still be here but it is working and a number of these clients have been coaching for years and years and years and love them like like professional family members you know love uh love working with them
1: oh! well i love that you brought up feedback and i know that feedback is even something that you ask of your children that you do like board meetings with them i think that that yes. i love that idea can you talk about that a little bit
0: yes this works anyone who's listening out there if it's as a parent, if it's as a business owner, if, as a teammate, as a, a spouse or someone who has a significant other, you know this feedback concept is absolutely the best kept secret hiding in plain sight. And it takes a lot of courage to ask someone that knows you very well for feedback. So The way that I do it, we'll just say with the kids, for example, this has been the most ninja-like tool of connecting with my kids, of getting to know what's important to them and getting their feedback. So we will have something called a board meeting, which is what I learned from reading the book, The Family Board Meeting by Jim Shields, who I'm going to have on my show, I think in two weeks from now. Yeah, fired up about that. The Family Board Meeting is the book. And the premise of it is you have 18 summers with your kids until they're out of the house. 18 summers to make a lifetime of memories and to really- be in the moment with them what he shares in the book is that once a quarter he would take a four hour period of time with his child with one of his kids he's setting the calendar in advance there's only three rules to the board meeting now, number one no electronics number two the child or the kid sets the agenda whatever they want to do no electronics for the adults so i'm not on my phone the whole time not on my outlook calendar they set the agenda and i put in there you know, a hundred dollar budget for whatever it is you want to do i give you an example my next board meets with my six-year-old daughter. Lucy on Saturday and we're going to go from about one thirty to five 30. And she wants to go to david busters you know And i know david busters is about a 60 dollars thing to get like an hour and a half of playing a bunch of video games together and getting some of that pizza so we're going to go do that we're going to also go to the playground there's a couple of we like to hit on the rotation we're probably going to go to goodwill or the habitat for humanity restore because when we shop for toys and, and books and things we always shop uh, at a discount it's kind of a little, little ninja tip there it's how the rich get richer we don't have to buy everything at retail if the same thing is just as good, but it's 30% the price. And that'll be our board meeting. Now, somewhere in this board meeting, when we're having a good time together, I'm going to slip in some questions for feedback. And I'm going to ask, like, I'm going to ask Lucy on Saturday, I'm going to ask, hey, Lucy, what am I doing really good as a dad right now? Like, what's good? You know, and for her at the age of six, it's not the same le- type of question I would ask a client who's running a multi million dollar empire right? It would be something for my, my six-year-old. It might be, what do I need to stop doing? What do I need to do more of? What do I need to do less of? Just something simple like that. And on my seven-year-old, I ask her even a different question. How am I doing as a dad? What am I really good at? What can I, what can I stand to get better at? You know, and I ask these questions on the board meeting, which is just the two of us, one-on-one but we've got a good rapport and we're in a trusting place. And I like to ask these questions and I'll I'll ask some other questions around, Hey, what's, what's hard for you at school right now? Is there anything you want to ask me about boys? You know, is there anything you want to ask me about growing up, anything you're hearing? And I feel this is the battleground or the place that I can, I don't want to say wage my war, but I can have influence with them in one-on-one conversations, working on and talking about stuff that's really important to the kids. And I found that they open up in the one-on-one, much more so than when they're in a triggered space uh, at the dinner table, if they're battling over the dessert and who gets the extra M&M and you got one more than I do. I mean, that's not the time to ask questions and try to teach them through intellect. I ask them that, you know, these cerebral questions when we're in a good spot, good rapport and yeah, you know, it's just one on one. So that's how I would do the board meeting. I
1: love that. It's, what yeah. feedback have you gotten? Yeah,
0: I tell you, it it breaks my heart sometimes when they say, Don't work so much. Don't work so much. And I think this is quite normal. I'm on the Zoom normally on a Monday through Wednesday from about nine to four or nine to five. To me, that makes sense. To me, that's normal. And to them, they get home from school at you know at three fifteen or so. And I'm on the I'm on the computer on the Zoom for another hour and a half or so. I grew up in a world in my own little world that I chose and I created where work was my outlet and ambition and growth and achievement was what I saw growing up. And it's part of the hardwiring that I've come to love it. So I'm pretty consistently going back to thinking about work or thinking about the impact on the world. That's not really work to me to think about the podcast and impact on the world. It is to them, though, when they see me on the iPad with my Good Notes app or they see me getting in front of the computer. They equate it as the daddy's always working. So this is the feedback that's challenging sometimes is you're always working, work less. So writing that balance of how much is the right amount of work to put in versus time to put in with the kids when you're growing a business empire and impacting the world and doing stuff for yourself. And they require and demand so much attention. And I gratefully and humbly want to give it to them. They say, you work too much. I don't get to talk to you as much, right? Those are painful things to hear and it makes me rethink some of the strategies and, and how we're getting back free time to spend with the kids. That's what they say to me. It's more time. Once upon a time, my middle daughter would say, don't yell so much. That was a, that was a tough pill to swallow. That was about two and a half years ago when she was uh, about three and a half. We started doing board meetings with her. She said, don't yell at me. That's it. Don't yell at me. And that was painful to hear. She thinks that I'm yelling because I did yell for a period of time. I've talked about this a number of times in shows that I was a yeller. And now I'm happy to say we're in a yell free home. The feedback I got about three and a half years ago, two and a half, three and a half years ago was not the same feedback it is today. don't work so much. Then it was don't yell at me.
1: Did your dad ask for feedback from you?
0: Did not He did not uh, you know we grew up in a strong I'd say a German heritage background strong males uh, not not a big feeling sharing type of environment for all the strengths my mom and dad gave me which is like 90 95 of what they've gifted me I'm, I'm so fortunate to have so fortunate to have had that that growing up you know I never had name brand clothes but I never had to worry about where I'm sleeping Right, and there was always food on the table. Sometimes there was less food than others, but it was never. Are we are we going to have to worry about where we're sleeping? Sleeping in the car tonight, right? So having said that, they gave me all the basic hierarchy of needs that we needed, and you know, we didn't. We weren't, weren't huggy and touchy and loving. My mom's like that, but dad was never like that. So no, I, we didn't. We didn't really have feedback conversations. His leadership style was more of the old football coach, or more of the get it done and set a high expectation, and I expect you to hit it. And he can do a lot with just the look, the look. He could do a lot with that. So yeah, never, never really feedback. Do you feel like up. that was
1: a generational thing though?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, the more people work on themselves or the more they come to this high level of emotional intelligence or higher self-awareness, and I think we might subscribe to some of the same people out there that talk about meditating and having a good routine in the morning and evening and whatnot. But when you go on that self-discovery journey and you find that feedback is a way to unlock a lot of barriers and relationships. It's a very natural growth place for me. I've been in this feedback culture for the last probably seven years. I probably picked it up year two in coaching. And now I'm asking everybody for feedback. In fact, I put it into my coaching practice, even in the outset, before you even ever start the first call of a new client, I share with them that every quarter or every six months, depending on the engagement, We're going to have a feedback conversation and you're going to offer me feedback on how I'm doing as coach. I'm going to give you feedback on how you're doing as a player in your own game. You know, so like to set the expectation for feedback early, often, and as much as I can with clients and my wife and I do really good with feedback now. I was going to ask you
1: that. Yeah. What what kind of feedback do you get from her? That is... I feel like a rarity. I don't feel like a lot of couples ask for that from each other. And I think that that could be very useful.
0: Well, here might be a place for listeners if your antennas are, are, are up, definitely have them up as high as they can go right now. This may be a pivotal turning point in my life. When I had a conversation with Julie back in 2016, December 26th, 2016, after Christmas, I had been talking to my coach and he said, uh, Matt, you need to ask your wife for feedback. Oh, okay. Uh, what do you mean? Well, we went through the, the the conversation and he said, go and ask her for feedback. So I went to Julie, my wife. We've been married now for two years, uh, almost three. So almost three in a month. And we had two children. Our second daughter was just born two and a half months ago. So she comes to me or actually I go to her. I say, Julie, I'd like to have a conversation with you and ask you for some feedback. I'm going to give you just carte blanche permission to say anything that you feel. And I'm going to do my very best to not get defensive, not get all banana shape. I want you to give me the real feedback on how I'm doing as a husband, as a father, and as a human being. Do you think you can do that? She said, uh-huh. are you sure? Like, literally, are you sure? Like, it's that's already. Are you sure? And I'm like, uh, yes, yes. Uh, what have I got myself into? Uh, but yes, yes. So she said to me, I think you've been lying to me for a while now. I'm like, what? What? Are you kidding me? Because this is like one of my trigger things, being called a liar. That's like so against my integrity and against my values. Like, that's, I'm incredibly intrigued and defiant. I get defensive instantly. I'm like, liar. Like my coach said, though, whatever they say, when you're asking for feedback, thank you. Tell me more. And tell me more. She said to me this. Well, you know how when we had our second daughter, you said to me that you'd get rid of your sports car and we'd get a family vehicle. Yes, I do remember that conversation. We've had it several times. Well, you said you are going to do it and you never did it. So you've been lying to me all this time. And Rena, I'm like, wow. This was a great example of communication breakdown because I knew she said this. I knew she wanted it and I was ready to do it. I simply didn't see this as the top of the priority chain. For her, it was a top priority. For me, it was probably like number seven or eight or nine. So she wanted it now. I'm skating by to to get it probably in in Q2 for the next year. And she said, well, you're lying to me. So the moral of the story is we could both be saying the same thing and hearing each other. And I didn't realize how real important it was to her. Within the next three days, we went and got a car. I got rid of my sports car and, and we got a car, a family vehicle. Now, come to find out that that family vehicle could only hold two car seats for kids, and then we would find out shortly thereafter that we're pregnant with our third child. So that car only lasted like a year and a half because <laughs> uh, we needed to get it out and get a different one. That was the experience when I asked Julie for feedback. One thing I learned from that, because the eternal optimism is always you know taking whatever comes at you and learning from it so you can apply it and use it to your advantage moving forward. One thing I learned from the feedback conversation with Julie is never assume that we're always exactly on the same page just because I think I heard her. So I've asked her for feedback at least every year, sometimes more frequently than that on how I'm doing. And some themes have come up over and over again about being a better listener about and then really not just putting in one ear, but going in one ear and actually sitting with it and Feeling it, so this led me to my emotional intelligence journey, which I hired a coach for. That's it been transformational in my life. I've been working with him for two years and two months now. So my emotional intelligence is is way way higher because of this conversation that I had with Julie about six years ago. That's, That's great.
1: A, I love that you but, acted upon it so quickly.
0: Well, so here's the thing: if you're a coach and you're challenging people, here we'll go back to one of your questions earlier. If you're thinking about getting into coaching or hiring a coach, you know, I would like a coach. At least the coach that would work well with me, and I have several for myself and the type of coach that I am, I want to get the ideas out and tease them all out. But if they die in the vine and we just talk about them and nothing actually ever happens, that is not good coaching in my perspective. You know, Coaches are hired to help you get results in some way, shape or fashion. And if the idea of, let's just talk about it, admire the problem. I'm not going to do anything by admiring the problem. you got to be able to solve it or at least make progress towards solving the problem. So any coach worth their salt, in my opinion, is going to help you tease out the idea. Maybe it's clear as mud. Maybe it's clear as crystal. But you get the idea out and then you integrate it. You take action. And it might be the simplest, soonest action that you can possibly think of just so you can make some progress. But there is some action involved in a coaching relationship. It's not just we have good conversation. There's an action that comes with it you know so when you talk to me about you know taking feedback from Julie, of course nobody wants to hire a coach who's all talk and no action. so I've got to practice this stuff and if I'm asking her for feedback I've got to adapt and I've got to take action on it lest I stay the same and you know I unintentionally or maybe intentionally if I didn't want to change I do my marriage or I doom a relationship if I'm not willing to adapt and evolve what the relationship needs. Oh, nope. yeah,
1: my dad's gonna love that. I have one question here from Matt Gilholly, who you were on his Life Shift podcast. Oh, Matt, So that was a great episode, by the way. I loved that. He said that you guys went down a route that he didn't expect. And he loved that. And he wanted to dig more into how you use the journals from your dad. So can we talk a little bit about that for our last question here?
0: Well, I remember that after my father passed away, within a few months, my mom read his diary or journal, and his big regret was that he never caddied for me in the pro golf tour. I find it fascinating, the concept of going back and reading something my father wrote years ago. So I went down the rabbit hole a little bit here, and when I did the walk of his home office after he passed away and saw... His notes, his goal setting journals, his basically his life's work, and got to see how he thought about things. I still keep in my iPad to this day, I, I still keep his vision statement, his goals, and things that he wanted. And they give me some energy and they inspire me. So if your question is how might I use my father's journaling or my father's work or the things I read about from him, I use them for inspiration. I use them for fuel, you know, to fuel the engine. It's one of the things that my father gifted me with that I'm still grateful for to this day is he gifted me with the ambition to live up to a standard, a standard for humanity, a standard for people. You know, we grew up, both my mom and dad grew up incredibly poor. My mom was on welfare with a lot of of abuse in a number of relationships, uh, including her familial Relationship with a number of dads that came in and out. She doesn't have a relationship with her real father. I believe he passed some years ago. And then her second dad, no relationship. The third dad is the one that I would call granddad on her side, and he was a great man. But in any event, they uh, they had struggles growing up, so they came from very humble beginnings, and they taught me to be humble and caring and loving of all people. So I've kind of always been since I got bigger than most people. I grew. Pretty big uh, around tenth grade. I've been the defender of the downtrodden, or the 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 nerds at school, or the smaller person uh, who's getting picked on by a bully. You know, I would step in and kind of get in the middle of that simply because I had a little bit of size. I had been beaten up before by these said type of bullies, and knew how to deal with bullies was to just to confront them head on, and most of them would actually. They would back down or if they fought then you know we would have a fight and then after that's over with these actually become good friends they don't bully me or the people i'm around anymore all right so you ask how i might use the journals well i used them for inspiration and fuel to live up to this great standard and i look at them quite frequently like my dad wrote some affirmations and i read some of these affirmations every morning that inspire me, give me energy and, and more into who I am.
1: Can you read a few?
0: I thought you might ask me that. <laughs> and I can. I can read one of my dad's mission statements. This is this is one of the things that, uh, and I highlight a bunch of things. So I'll, I'll read something in here for my dad. Look at your family. Are you working, communicating, cooperating well together? And this was a, a journal question that he had journaled on sometime. This is probably about 15 years uh, before you pass so this is about the time I'm in high school these are the things he's writing down are you working communicating cooperating well together he wrote down not really not really i need to set aside and spend more time each day just so i could talk to him we need to develop a family mission statement develop a weekly schedule of some type take a daily walk together so this time we don't lose it All right and i'm i'm looking at this right now i put everything into the ipad i, I look at this and and i think I'm on that exact same path as a high achieving focused in business guy. This was me when I first read this at 28, when he died, I read this and I wanted to take the best of what he offered me, which is the work ethic, the integrity, uh, the leadership, you know, the living to a standard. And he gets me with this genetic frame because I'm tall. I mean, opinions vary, incredibly good looking, but opinions will vary on that one, but I uh, have a good sense of humor. Opinions vary on that one too. But I, I took so much of the good of what he offered me. And then to be able to go back and read some of the things that he wrote down and see, am I repeating some of the self-defeating behaviors? Am I taking this and elevating it to a next place in our family name and our family generational growth. And these are the kind of things that, uh, that give me the fuel. So this is one way that I use it is I go back and read these things. If you're looking for more structure, I can give you structure all day, baby. I'm a structure guy. This would be once a month. I have a recurring invite in my calendar during one of my miracle mornings at 430 Eastern on a Friday. It's always the fourth Friday of the month. I will go and I will read from one of my dad's journals or, or the exercises and I'll ask how I'm doing compared to that. So that's that's something I do monthly is go back and look at this.
1: Wow. I got chills when you were reading that. That is so powerful. What an incredible legacy. Do you feel like your podcast is your mission and your legacy for your children, kind of like your dad's journals?
0: 100%. 100%. Podcast is the uh, passion project for the world to play offense for the world. We get so much inundation with negative stuff out there. I want to give back hope and you can do it two attitude. That's why I have people like you on who are, have amazing stories of overcoming things so that we can give something positive to the world. My kids, they don't speak up a whole lot when I'm on shows and they certainly can't hear anything anyone's saying on the other end. They can just see me here. But when they are home, I can see that their antennas are up. And they're playing not too far from me, about 20 feet away over there. So they're hearing all of this. They're hearing all of this, at least from my end. They're hearing the questions I'm asking, and they're hearing the positive slant of the eternal optimism to everything that we do. For better or for worse, I'm hoping for better. This will be something that is our legacy to the family and to the world.
1: Amazing. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad?
0: I want to appreciate your father for everything he's done because it's certainly you've been a blessing in my life. Your energy has been something that's inspired me ever since we met. I love your social media presence. It's always with questions or it's always with a positive slant. You're not a dirt slinger. You tend to do things from a very graceful, positive frame. And, and I appreciate that. So what I might ask your dad if I had the opportunity would be uh, Wayne. I would, I say Wayne, now that we look back and, and Rena's a full grown up woman with a family of her own. And, and from what I can see, she's Successful. Successful meaning that she has happiness, she has uh, love in her heart, or she she gives and doesn't take. She just gives, gives, gives to the world. What might be one or two of the top core values or tenets that you use when you were raising her and her siblings? And then I might ask if you can go back and do it again, knowing what you know now, is there any incident that you might do over and, and take a different approach? Or is there any habit or activity that you might engage more in or less in than you did growing up? I'm I'm curious about that. Knowing that we don't have complete control as parents, we do have a lot of influence when the kids are living with us, especially in that age of like, you know, four to twelve, somewhere in there. They're they're sponges. So I'm I'm curious if Wayne could answer those questions. I'd love to love to listen.
1: I'll tell you, he's getting a lot of feedback and doing this project with me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Good. Well, I'm sure you could take it. I'm seeing I see him in the background right here and I love these pictures in the background. He looks super cool. I love him. he's got this head, got the facial hair of goatee. He looks kind of like Walter White from Breaking Bad a little bit there. You know, he looks like he's a a positive gangster, that is. You might be able to edit that out. I didn't mean to call your dad a gangster. But if he is?
1: I think so he, too. I think he's gangster. He's a, loving gangster. He's a <laughs> loving gangster, but yes, he's a total character. I always make jokes. I'm like he looks like like the Jewish Tony Soprano or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. I would smile at that joke. Yes.
1: Oh my Good. gosh. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you being willing to like answer some of my harder questions. That's very cool. And. Oh
0: yeah. This was great. This were those hard? I don't know if they were that hard, but then again, you, you get the two of us start talking. I don't think there's anything off limits. We'll just go and go and go. And that's what we do. And I appreciate if your listeners can take any insight from this or any feeling that, Whatever the challenge is out there, you can overcome it. Now that's my whole life's mission is an internal optimist and check out my podcast, but this is this is the mission. It's to show other people they can do it too. And you did it or are doing it, I did it or am doing it. And our parents gave us something. So whatever you are out there, you can do it. Just bite off a little bit at a time, make some progress, you can do it.
1: That was awesome. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Matt Drinkon, have you ever had a catheter, Dad?
2: No, but my dad has, and uh, it's not fun. And uh, even my mom has, as you know, when she was in the hospital. It's not fun at all. But, you know, Matt starts off as his question, you know, again, where everybody wants to keep asking me, what could I change if I could go back in time? And, uh, you know, it sounds like the same answer, but you can't change anything backwards. The only thing that you can do is hopefully change your your motion or what you're going to do in the future. Okay. It's not about changing the past. It's about trying to change your future. Everything that he's experienced, all of the trauma with all of his accidents and body ailments. And yet, you know, he was an athlete also. So, I mean, he, he's bounced back tremendously from sometimes some devastating injuries, but this busting up his back was really his new beginning because he can't be overzealous or uh, ostentatious when it comes to his health or his body any longer, or he's just going to fold up and uh, end up in a, in a box in the ground. So what is his real calling? Is it to play golf? Is it to play football or basketball? Or is it to be able to show that someone with this type of adversities, where everybody pretty much giving up on whether he could even maybe even walk again or be cured, is that he becomes relentless to continue to be what? A problem solver, to find an answer of trying to help himself And what he does in his podcast is try to help other people, even if they make only a little bit of progress, is to say that, hey, we have to keep coming up with positive steps and move forward with our lives. And, you know, we talk about the Better Call Daddy show as something to pass on as a legacy to your children and your children's children. And uh, isn't that really what this wonderful art of podcasting is, is that you get to have unfiltered, real believable people pouring their hearts out and being able to talk to other people where you really get a sense of real reality and not some type of phony or fake news. And that's what we're trying to do. And we want to do it and be real about it. But you know what? If you want to be a coach, let's give him credit also. It's not about you if you're the coach. It's about the other person. And you're there to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. And you have to walk the walk with them and help them make progress with their lives. And not just sell them some tapes or sell them a speech or sell them come to my camp and all of a sudden you'll be on top of the world and you'll be just like me. It's not even close. It's a battle. And to have a coach is somebody that's going to battle with you your issues, not the teacher's issues.
1: What do you think about the questions mm-hmm. that he asked his spouse or asked his children? That's
2: pretty powerful. Well, I think the most moving part to me was, is that his father gave him a lot of his wisdom. It's written down in a journal And he's trying very hard to share his father's wisdom and take it to a higher level. And isn't that what my dad had even mentioned to me, is that I would really like you to be better than me, not where you're as good as me. He was always wanting me to be better than even him. And isn't that what my goal is with my children and children's children is where they can also continue to mature and be bigger people and be able to take those principles that hopefully that I've worked so hard to hand down and take it to where they can be more compassionate and more loving and more constructive and smarter and be able to do more things than than I do. My father did a lot of things. Would like to think that I'm trying hard to keep up with him, but also in some ways where I also have surpassed some of his accomplishments, but in my own way. It doesn't have to be his way, but in my own way, just like my daughters and my grandsons and daughters hopefully will accomplish things in their way. We want to ensure that they have all of those opportunities to develop and learn and be able to progress as well isn't that what humanity's test is, is to be able to follow some of God's rules and be able to show that they can understand them and to better mankind and where the world itself matures and, and gains from all of our wisdom. and the podcast reaches out to a lot of people but so do books so do conventions and conversations there are many many ways of being able to express your point of view and let's hope that we all can continue to have that freedom to do so
1: amen i liked that he asked his wife how am i doing as a spouse and he asked his kids how am i doing as a
2: dad well the truth of the matter is is that he doesn't make it about himself on what just he thinks He's very interested in what others think and in a constructive manner, not where he's trying to prove something extra. He just wants to make sure that everybody's on board with what he's doing. And if they're not, he wants constructive feedback where he's willing to adapt so that he can make a better future and a better communicator with whoever he's talking to. And that's really something that we all have to be open-minded to, is to be a little humble Have a little humility and be willing to listen to others and not just tell others what we think. It's good to hear what other people think and be able to put it into a fair and positive perspective.
1: Have you had to make any adjustments?
2: Do I make adjustments every day? (laughs) But not only that, but still, even when you think that people can change, you also have to keep your guard up because it could be just an act and people sometimes don't change. So the truth of the matter is, is that having a worldly amount of experience and knowing how people react in different circumstances you can never change that you learn from it and hopefully be able to adapt to how they're going how you're going to react and how they're going to react in the future and you hope that you can i told you in one of the other episodes i have to learn how to get along more with people that disagree with me that don't have the same beliefs that I have. I think it's very important to learn how to communicate your views, but understand that you got to keep your guard up because there's a lot of people that don't agree with you that might yes you to death and still really be against with what you're saying they're not necessarily really saying yes to you other than i hear you i hear you and that's the shaking of the head instead of saying yes i hear you but i think you're still full of you know what so we have to remember that we don't have to sell ourselves the right values and perspectives we have to be able to engage and show it I told you, like, that's what a good coach or instructor or a good teacher does is that they don't just talk the talk. They show it by their actions that they walk the walk.
1: Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad.
2: I'll say goodbye and see you the next time.
1: Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom.
2: Better Call Daddy is good advice always.
1: Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's a wrap for now.